Really appreciate that uh, testimony and really appreciate Mark, just the excellent job he's doing building community with our youth. I also would like to thank the uh, 300 people that showed up today. So good to see all of you. Uh, actually, I'm going to take a picture later on so we can get a good idea of the extreme social distancing that we're practicing today. Uh, it is, uh, it's good to see you this morning. We've been in this little series on the soul and, uh, I've been a little bit surprised at the positive response. I, when I first started covering this material, I didn't know there was going to be so much ground to cover, but I've been very happy about the response. It's been very positive. Uh, and, and I think maybe one of the reasons it's been that positive is because this is one of those subjects people don't talk about that much. We don't hear that much about it. And uh, part of the reason that we don't hear that much about it is because uh, death is not one of those things that we like to talk about too much. H.L. Mencken put it like this. He said, death is that universal conspiracy that will not be mentioned here. We deny death. We suppress death. We look the other way when it comes to death. And then when death actually arrives, we act like we're surprised that it actually ever practically showed up for ourselves or for anyone else that we, we ever knew. Uh, but that's why we're talking about the soul, because... Our attention has been largely, over the last month, a little bit focused on death. I don't know if you remember this, but about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, we all thought we were all going to die, like this year. And as it turns out, we're all going to die, but probably not this year. But it's a very short trip from thinking about death to thinking about what comes after death. And then it's a very short trip from thinking about what comes after death to thinking about Well, is there actually a me inside of me that is going to survive this? And so we've been talking about the soul. But the reason we don't typically talk about the soul is people just don't like thinking about just the subject matter of of death. I mean, we've got people in the healthcare. We've got two people that represent the healthcare uh, community right here this morning. And and, and y'all probably get a little bit of these weird responses from time to time from people that they're always surprised when death or the threat of death comes. But we don't like to talk about it as a culture. We really don't. We come up with this, these euphemisms or these ways of talking about death so we don't have to say death or have to say dying or have to say dead. When somebody passes away, we say something like, he passes away. That's a euphemism in and of itself. When someone uh, dies, we don't want to say he died. We want to say you know, he bought the farm or she kicked the bucket or, you know, my dog is taking a dirt nap right now or whatever we say. We, if we're kind of religious, we say, well, they've passed on to the other side or she's gone to meet Jesus or my grandparents are resting in Abraham's bosom, which may sound really good for my grandparents, but it's not really where I want to spend all eternity. But we do have these euphemisms. We don't even want to say dead. So, if your your parrot dies, don't say your parrot's dead. Just say polygon. If you're dealing with a dead fly, just say flu. If you've got a dead battery, don't say dead battery. Just say it's free of charge. You just We have all these ways where we can avoid even saying the word death. Don't say your team is dying out on the field. Just say they're playing like the New York Jets. Uh, just, just don't use the word, word death. H.L. Mencken's right. People deny death. They suppress death as if... If we were to look away from death, maybe death could just be a little bit less deadly. And then COVID-19 shows up and we cannot look away. Our faces are turned toward death and we start thinking about death and what comes next. And so naturally we've been talking about the soul. And as we've been talking about the soul, we can't help 
but touch on the afterlife. And we're going to get a little bit more into that in the next couple of weeks. But today we're going to go back to the subject of the soul. And I'm not trying to be, to beat the soul to death or anything. There's just a lot of questions that remain to be answered. And so we're going to dive back into the depths of the soul, but let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. We're going to be looking first at Philippians chapter one, verses 20 through 24. Uh, it's a, a classic text from the apostle Paul, where he talks about how his person exists apart from the body. And it's very much like 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 through 4. Um, but we're not going to read all those passages. This will just be a representative peek into the doctrine of the Apostle Paul so you can see that the Apostle Paul, his doctrine on the soul is the same as that of the teaching of Jesus and the same as the teaching of the Old Testament all the way up through Revelation We looked at these before, but let's go to the Apostle Paul here. Philippians chapter 1, starting with verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am able to go on living in this body, it will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated now. This is a very straightforward, easy to understand text where the apostle Paul here is contrasting life in the body, living in the body with being away from the body, but somehow present with Jesus, uh, this is a contrast between over here having a physical body, but then over here still being conscious, having a consciousness that is enjoying Jesus because he wants to enjoy Jesus and find his satisfaction in Jesus. And he looks forward to being away from the body so he can have more satisfaction than he's having now in terms of being with Christ. This is a clear teaching against the common misperception that at death the person ceases to exist and then later when Jesus returns they poof back into existence with a resurrection body that is clearly undermined by this passage first Corinthians chapter 5 second Corinthians chapter 5 second Corinthians chapter 12 what this passage is teaching and other passages are teaching in a very straightforward manner is when you die the essence of who you are your soul still remains and goes to be with Jesus goes to be with Jesus and what some people have come to call intermediate heaven but you go to be with jesus as you're waiting with jesus for the new heaven and the new earth when jesus comes again and we get our perfect full resurrection bodies but in the meantime you continue to exist and so the apostle paul is teaching precisely the same thing that jesus in particular taught and he is very much teaching what is consistent with all the rest of the bible from Genesis all the way up through Revelation. And that is, you have a soul. But not only do you have a soul, you have a soul that continues to exist consciously after physical death. It continues to exist somewhere. Now, what the Bible does not teach is it does not teach that all souls go to the same somewhere. The Bible does not support that or teach that at all. But if your soul does exist after physical death, well, of course, your soul exists somewhere, but it does continue to exist. 
Now, what's been so interesting, and we've been looking at this on Sunday evenings from 5 o'clock to 6.30 as we've been in the Historic Sanctuary live streaming, we've been looking at the experiences of people who become convinced that they know at least a portion of what awaits them after death. These are people who have experienced near death. Okay, these are near-death experiences where the person is clinically dead. That is, their brain quits functioning and their heart stops beating. They're not breathing any longer. They become clinically dead. But oftentimes, these people who are clinically dead will come back. They'll be resuscitated. And oftentimes, these people who've been clinically dead will come back with interesting stories to tell. Testimonies that not only dramatically overlap with other people who've had similar near-death experiences, but these are testimonies that interesting, in interesting and provocative ways, in verifiable ways, intersect in specific ways with things that are verified by people who are still living. This is where it gets really, really interesting. Some of the stories that people come back with after having been clinically dead are just very difficult to explain other than to simply accept the testimony of the person who was dead, that they actually did what they said they did, that they left their body and heard certain things and saw certain things that they should not have been able to see or experience because the events and the circumstances happened while their body was lifeless on the ground or lifeless on the table. Okay, for example... I love this little story from John Cooper. Dr. John Cooper, he's a professor of philosophical theology at Calvin Seminary. And he tells a story about a man who died of a heart attack. And when this man died of a heart attack, when he was clinically dead, he left his body. This is his story. He left his body and he saw an acquaintance of his. Then he was told that he needed to return and he felt himself drawn back into his body. Now, this is a very common sort of testimony. But where it gets really interesting is... When this man came to and regained consciousness, he was able to communicate with other people that he had seen this acquaintance of his, only he did not know this acquaintance of his had died 24 hours previously, 2,000 miles away. He didn't know that this acquaintance of his was even dead until two months later. This sort of phenomenon is actually rather common, where the person reports seeing someone on the other side, not knowing that the person that the subject saw had died. Rather common. What's also interesting is on the flip side, whenever people have these near-death experiences, they never see people who are still living. They always only see people who are deceased, even if they don't know that the person they see has died. Now, how do you explain that? How do you explain it when people say, well, I left my body and I was hovering over the surgical table, and then they come back and explain details of the surgery that nobody but a medical student should be able to know. Or they say, I left my body and I went to another room in the hospital and I heard this conversation and you said and you said and you cussed, which reminds me, hey, you don't cuss in private. Somebody may be watching, but I digress. And so they'll come back and they'll say, hey, I heard you saying this and the clergyman showed up at this time. And these are all details that are confirmed by eyewitness testimony. They're corroborated by people who are still living. How do you explain this? Probably the most bizarre of all of these near-death experiences has to do, in my opinion, with people who are blind. Uh, Kenneth Ring, who is from the University of Connecticut, interviewed 21 blind people who had had near-death experiences. 
14 of them had been blind from birth. And after these interviews and finding corroborating testimony from the people who were still living and sighted, it was determined that people who are blind see for the first time or see with great clarity for the first time. Some of them are legally blind. Some are totally blind from birth. And they see in ways that they've never seen before. And they also see things that they shouldn't be able to see, not only because they're dead, but because they've never seen before. And their eyewitness testimony, even though they're blind, checks out with those who are still living. How in the world do you explain this? There have been 3,500 well-documented cases, at least 65 different sets of cases and examinations and cross-examinations of all of the evidence. How do you explain these things? Now, people have tried to explain these things. Uh, There have been alternative explanations. Some researchers have suggested that um, when the brain is deprived of oxygen, for example, during a a drowning or maybe a chokehold or something like this, a person can see white light and they can experience feelings of euphoria. Uh, Other researchers have suggested that hallucinogenic drugs, anesthetics, uh, maybe even the secretion of endorphins, which your your body naturally produces during times of stress, these can produce paradise-like experiences. These explanations, though, lack explanatory power because they still don't explain how did the dead person see into the other room what was going on while they were dead. Now, you've got, we have to be really honest here and objective. It is absolutely true. We cannot objectively confirm the testimony of what happens after life. Not the same as when a person sees someone earthly because what happens when regard, when people encounter Jesus or heaven or other people who are dead, you can't put that in a test tube. You can't cross-examine the witnesses and all of the rest. I mean, because that happens in another world. You can't objectively tell whether the testimony is genuine or imagined. But here's what is so eerily consistent. How do you explain all of these near-death experiences, especially those when people encounter other people who have gone on before and they didn't even know that they had died. How do you explain the fact that when people have these near-death experiences, they always only encounter people who are dead, not those who are living? This is so consistent that people don't blow past this. Researchers who are looking for alternative explanations recognize this is not chance, and so they've come up with an alternative explanation for this. Here it is. ESP and clairvoyance. The person didn't actually leave their body and go see these people. What actually happened is they experienced ESP and clairvoyance. Now, here's my question for you, and this is, you can answer for yourself. What do you find more believable? To believe the testimony of the person who died and came back or the explanation that a person who's never experienced ESP or evidenced any clairvoyance in their life all of a sudden has Professor X-like qualities when they're brain dead? As for me, I just have a tendency to lean in to the person who died and came back and told their story, especially when it's the most seamless fitting explanation as to why they experienced what they experienced. But you may buy all that or not. I, I do believe this. But I also believe in the veracity or the truthfulness of these near-death experiences for three other reasons. One reason is I just think the data and the documentation fits best with the explanation given by those who died. But beyond that, we do have in the Bible at least one really plausible 
instance of a near-death experience. In the Bible, we also have, secondly, we also have a dying experience, which is very near to a near-death experience. It's slightly different, but it's very clearly there in the Bible. And then beyond that, I just know some people who I find to be very trustworthy, people I personally know, people who are quite believable, and I know at least four people who've told me their near-death experiences, and I find it incredibly believable, especially when they can remember these instances like it was yesterday. So let's just get it, let's get back into the Bible here. Uh, if you're looking for a near-death experience in the Scripture, you can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 through 4. Here it would appear that the Apostle Paul is speaking of himself. This is the majority interpretation of what Paul is talking about here. Let's just read this together. He says, starting with verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. But at the very least, he holds out the possibility that he could have been out of body because that fits consistently with the idea of the soul living independent of the the body. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things that man is not permitted to tell. Now, what do we have going on here? Here's the Apostle Paul essentially saying, I had, I had this experience. I don't know if it was in the body or out of the body. It's hard to tell. It was, it was pretty, pretty profound. And I saw inexpressible things. I heard inexpressible things. I can't really express them, but if I could express them, I wouldn't be permitted to express them. It was just this powerful moment. And he says he experienced it 14 years ago. Why, why would we link up this particular passage with a temporary moment of Paul's death, thus classifying it as a near-death experience? Well, here's why. 14 years ago, something profound happened for the Apostle Paul. You know what happened for Paul 14 years prior to 2 Corinthians? He finds himself in Lystra, witnessing, bearing witness to the gospel. He's with his friend Barnabas, the encourager. And while he's in Lystra, some Jews from other communities came and stoned Paul, apparently, to death. Stoning was the means of execution that was rather simple. Pick up a rock and chunk it. The first Christian martyr was killed by stoning. That's Stephen. Here, Paul is stoned. And let's read what the Bible tells us. This is Acts chapter 14, starting with verse 19. Then some Jews came over from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside of the city, thinking he was dead. They left him for dead. Why? Because they thought he was dead. They stoned him. He's not breathing. He's lying there motionless after they've, they've thrown rocks for his execution and some of them hit him, have hit him in the head. He's probably bleeding and all the rest and he's not moving. And then they take his body that has gone limp and they drag it outside the city. Now, I tried to figure out what that would look like. How far do you have to drag someone to drag them out of the city? Well, maybe he fell over right at the city gate and they just drag, drug him like six feet and left him there. Probably that's not what happened. And probably you don't leave the dead body just right outside the city gate. So here they take Paul and they drag him. They're not carrying him gently. They don't throw him over the shoulder. They don't put him on a gurney. They're dragging him over the ground, over the rocks. And they're dragging and dragging and dragging. And he's not making a sound. He's not making any any noises. It doesn't seem like he's breathing. He's not moving. He's probably not sweating. He may not. It doesn't look like he's even bleeding additionally. He's just 
limp and they drag him out of the city and they leave him out there for dead. Why? Because they think he's dead. And maybe he was, maybe they're right. Because it's not until after Paul's body is surrounded by disciples, and that's what the Bible tells us, and I think it's verse 20, that the Christians come and they surround his body, presumably to pray for Paul, and it's not until that moment that Paul gets up and goes back into the city. It would appear that when Paul was out, whether in the body or out of the body, whether he was unconscious or a temporary coma or he left his body, here's what appears to have happened. In that moment, God granted Paul an opportunity to see what life with God would be like, how wonderful that could be, how incredible that would be to be with God in heaven. Now, why would God allow the Apostle Paul that sort of an opportunity? Well, here's a suggestion. I know from having read and heard and listened to these different testimonies of people who've had near-death experiences that when they have that near-death experience, they're not afraid to die. Not at all. Now, I think for most of us, well, I don't really want to die, and maybe we kind of wonder when the moment comes, am I going to be ready for it? And But the people who've had the near-death experiences, they are absolutely, consistently, if they've had the positive variety, they are unafraid to die. Maybe Paul is given this experience by God because of a buildup of, of courage and conviction. And Paul had courage and conviction in spades. I mean, after all, he stood there and took the stoning. And then he got up and went back into the city. So Paul's already courageous. But you've got to understand, Paul had an extremely hard ministry. Maybe God's giving him some encouragement. For just a second, I want you to think about how hard his ministry had to have been. Just think about the hardship of Paul being a prisoner for Jesus. Most of us go, yeah, yeah, I don't want to go to prison. You know, that'd be a really bummer, uh, you know, just to be stuck at home and watching TV all the time and not to get out. I'd hate to be, oh, wait, okay. Yeah, okay. Prison was worse than your lockdown and, uh, you know, shelter in place rules, okay? Roman prisons were not a joke. First of all, before you went into prison, they'd strip you. They'd strip you naked and they would flog you, which was humiliating and bloody and painful. Then they wouldn't tend to your wounds and your clothing, if it was battered and bloody, it didn't matter. You wore it. They didn't launder it for you. They didn't give you a fresh set of clothes as you're checking in. No, you wore it even if it wasn't sufficient for the cold and things got really cold in those prisons. You might remember the last chapter of the last letter that Paul ever wrote, he's asking for his cloak. You're like, why is he talking about Jesus and all these things and I'm encouraging you? And then he asked for his cloak because he's cold. They're not providing uh, warmth in prison. On top of that, it's cramped quarters. The food's terrible. Most of the time, they're not providing food. Most of the time, if your needs are going to be met in a very practical matter, you've got to make arrangements for people to come tend to your needs. That's why in the book of Acts, Felix, who's this procurator, gives orders to a centurion, don't keep the friends of Paul from administering help and assistance to him. Why did he say that? Because you had to get help and assistance from other people. Prisons were dark, especially the inner cells could be almost with no light at all. And you see this in the Philippian jail. The apostle Paul is there with Silas and they're in the inner cell of the jail. It could be very dark. So you have cramped quarters, incredible darkness, unbearable cold, lack of water, poor food. On top of all of this, you had toilets that were really insufficient. And so the stench on top of everything else kept you from getting a good night's sleep and it kept you miserable during the day. Oftentimes too, female and male prisoners were co-mingled in the same cell 
which led to incredible sexual immorality and unspeakable abuse. Roman prisons were so bad that the majority of people pled to be executed. And if they weren't granted that gift, they'd commit suicide. Paul spends one-fourth of his ministry in these horrific conditions. So do you think that God maybe gave him a moment of encouragement so that not only would he keep on going and, and have tremendous conviction, but he could from prison, from these environments, write incredible radical words like for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. The Apostle Paul saw something that gave him a fire in his belly. So do I believe that we have here at least a plausible instance of a near-death experience? Absolutely. I think it, it does fit. On top of all of this, we have in the Bible a dying experience. And what I mean by a dying experience is it's kind of a near, near death. I don't know where that near death and near, near death actually ends, but it's very near. You're not actually brain dead. Your heart's still beating, but you're fading. And in these dying experiences, people are able to see something on the other side and communicate it to those who are still living right before the end comes. And you see this in the book of Acts with regards to Stephen and the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Because as he's being stoned to death, he says this. He, he looks. He says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And you've got to wonder what in the world is going through Stephen's mind as he's dying this cruel death. And I think God gives him at least a glimpse of what is coming as if to say, it's okay, Stephen, you, you can let go. And he does. And he, and he says, you know, Lord Jesus received my spirit. Now, this is a more common phenomenon, dying experiences. And I would imagine people out there, maybe even some of you, maybe have had an opportunity to be with someone in their dying moments. Uh, a father or a mother or grandfather, grandmother, uh, you know, a friend. Oftentimes, there will be a moment when they're reaching or they're seeing the welcoming party of those who've gone before or they hear the angels or they see Jesus or see heaven. And, and it doesn't seem like a waking dream and it doesn't seem like wishful thinking it feels to the people who are present that something is going on in this moment and that's not just believers who recognize this uh, diane comp she's a pediatric uh, oncologist she's a doctor for kids who have cancer that's just probably one of the worst jobs ever she said that she's had opportunities to be with kids in their dying moments and she says it's actually these near-death experiences or these dying experiences from kids that had, had basically moved her from being an atheist to an agnostic to eventually being a Christian, just witnessing the near-death or these dying experiences of children. You can read about it in, in, a, in a book that she wrote, Window to Heaven, A Window to Heaven. These are kids, she says, they don't have predisposed or predetermined ideas of the afterlife. They haven't read all the books and watched the different movies. They don't have a publisher's incentive to lie or exaggerate. And she says, as a pediatric oncologist, she had an opportunity on one occasion to be with a family that was present, a mom and a dad who were present, as their seven-year-old daughter was dying from leukemia. And right before the daughter passes, she says, the angels, the angels... They're so beautiful, Mommy. Can you see them? Can you hear them? They're singing. I've never heard such beautiful singing. And then she passed and just 
thinking about these moments. And Diane Comp, who starts out an atheist, doctor, Yale University graduate, she says, I can only describe these experiences with children as in, in one word. And the word she uses is gift. Just gift. Sometimes children who are dying will talk about how they were, you know, surrounded by warmth or warmth com- comes over them and, and there's a sense of love and a sense of peace enveloping them and then they die. Now, I would typically think that an atheist who deals with kids with cancer would probably be driven all the further into her atheism watching little kids suffer and die. That's how I would think. But for Diane Kampf, here's the thing. She says, no, I've seen too many of these dying experiences to blow this off. And these dying experiences were so real to an unbeliever that she moved from way over here on the disbelief scale to way over here on the scale of belief. So do I believe in near-death experiences? Well, sure. I think that there's way too much documentation, way too much data And the only explanation that actually fits the testimony, most of it actually verifiable in some respect or another, the only explanation is the explanation that is given by the people who've had the near-death experiences. In addition to this, we have, I think, a good near-death experience case in the New Testament. We also have a clear case of a dying experience, and we have plenty of people who have experienced being with people who have shared their dying experiences. On top of all of that, I do know personally Four people who are credible, I know personally, they have shared with me their near-death experience, and I believe them because I know them. Uh, and I want to bring up one right now. Come, Sharon, why don't you come up here? Um, you've got your microphone, don't you? Yeah. This is Sharon Jenkins. Uh, she has shared with our church before, but I want to just very briefly give her an opportunity to share, and I, I know that we're out of time. And so if you're out there in TV land, you can turn it off, but I would just say don't. Uh, this is a really cool, come on, you got to step up here a little closer here, get into the, come into the light. There we go. Yeah. Uh, now just tell us, uh, briefly and Sharon's going to have an opportunity to share on a Sunday night. And again, five o'clock tonight. And for the next few evenings, we're doing this class on near death experiences. You're going to want to tune into this. Sharon's going to come back in maybe two or three weeks and share more fully so I don't get mad at me for cutting her off and making her go too quick. But just real quick, share with us what happened. I know that you got hit in a head-on collision with a with a F-150 or something. Like, boom, yes. head-on. Yes. Then your body was put into a, a care flight, a helicopter. Yes. As you were being care flighted to the hospital, explain to us what happened. What what came over you? Explain that. Okay. And, and look out here. Okay. Um, I was lifted onto a helicopter. <laughs> There we go. Perfect. I was, I was lifted into a helicopter and in incredible agonizing pain. And I realized that being on that helicopter meant that I was in serious consequences. And I closed my eyes and I said, Jesus, you know I know you, and I'm ready to come if you want me. As that thought went through my mind, I felt this warmth settle over me. 
this warmth passed through my body, taking with it all pain, all fear. And I was taken, I believe, into the arms of Jesus in this incredible warmth. And I was taken to a place, total darkness, yet no fear, perfect, perfect peace that was so concentrated. When I moved my fingers, I could feel the peace going through them. I was in this wonderful place when suddenly colors that do not exist in this world because I have searched for them for 17 years, started coming towards me. Lastly, the one on my left was a glorious, deep, rich purple. The one on my right, glittering, sparkling, radiant gold. As these two colors merged together, there was an explosion of light brighter than fireworks fireworks don't even begin to compare yet it didn't hurt for me to look into these into this light like it does the sunlight i was taken into that warmth into that warmth where there was peace comfort love gentleness, and there I remained for 17 days. When I awoke 17 days later, I awoke instantly, knowing exactly that I was in Brackenridge Hospital, remembering the wreck, every detail, and I felt I had only been asleep maybe 20 or 30 moments, just a brief, brief short time, and was absolutely astounded when I was told I had been gone 17 days. Okay, now, it's not normal to be in a coma for 17 days and wake up like you had a nap, is it? No. Okay, explain um, the doctors. What did the doctors tell you? The the trauma doc that put me back together and a neurologist act after deep cognitive testing, both tears in their eyes, told me that I was a miracle. And in leaving the hospital, my favorite, Ben, the one that put me back together, told me, Sharon, from this day forward, everywhere you go and everyone you meet, you tell them you are walking, talking proof of the power of prayer and the power of God, for I had done everything humanly possible for you. Now, I know that your husband Mark was there by your side and he prayed and prayed for you, but you were mad that he prayed for you and you came back. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, yes. I mean, yeah, actually, you know, in all seriousness, th- yes. it was an adjustment coming back from your experience to life in this side yes. of the eternity, wasn't yes. it? Yes, yes. It, it was, I, I went from paradise, indescribable peace, into this world. And it took me five years, five years of daily battle to accept the fact that I had been brought back for a purpose and that I would live in this world until God let me come back home. Yeah. So you under, you, you identify with Paul, don't you? I mean, to live as Christ, to die as gain. It's to better die for y'all gain. that I would be here ministering the gospel. When but we as take for me, our, I'm ready to go. Oh, I'm ready to go. <laughs> and I can tell you, when you take your last yeah. breath here, you take your first breath there and it is glorious. And you know, I, I, you know, I, this is a little bit. This is comical to me because I didn't know you before this experience. But your story to me is, you know, I was kind of, uh, I was different, a little bit more angry, a little bit more bitter. Oh yes, and, I was. I was very different. Yeah. Very so it, different. It changed you. I will never be the same. Yeah. Thank you, Sharon, for sharing with us. Appreciate that. I can't shake your hand, but thanks. All right, we we are out of time. I appreciate everybody being so patient. But here's the takeaway from all of this. You have a soul. Why why would you deny it? It's taught from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between. And with great clarity, the Bible teaches, you do continue to go on after your physical death. And we have corroborating evidence from multiple dying experience moments and multiple near-death experience moments. And some of us have the privilege of knowing people personally who've had these types of experiences. Why would we disbelieve or doubt Jesus on any of this? Knowing what it is that we know, it would only be right and appropriate for us to prepare and to deal with death differently. Not as those who have no hope, but as those who know Jesus. So my encouragement is simply rest in the hope of Jesus Christ. If you've not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you need to take Jesus seriously because the word of God, the Bible, corroborates with great consistency these numerous near-death and dying experiences. Tonight at 5 o'clock or this afternoon at 5 o'clock, we're going to be back into these near-death experiences, and we're going to be looking at the near-death experiences that nobody wants to have. You'll want to come back for that too, because sometimes we see things that do confirm this isn't wishful thinking, because there is a dark side, and we have choices to make, and the choice is up to you, Jesus or not. But the one choice we do not have is dying or not. It is coming. Be prepared. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the love, the grace that you have given to us. We thank you for the assurance that you have given us that we will be with Christ. To be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And to be at home with Jesus, engulfed by his love and light, and joy, and grace, and peace that transcends all understanding. This is what we want, not just at the moment of death, but for all eternity. 
Thank you for making a relationship with you possible in this world. Thank you for the endurance of that relationship into the next. And we do pray that more and more people will take seriously the choice they have, turn to Jesus or not. Be with us now as we go out from this place. Be with us tonight as we continue the conversation on these important matters. And we pray this in Jesus' blessed holy name. Amen.